Well, this season, we're getting to see some interesting casting calls that God has made across this nativity story. And there are many scenes, many characters, as we have looked at, you know, Advent only being so long, we only get to cover so many of them. There are so many others that we didn't look at, and it's people, again, we never would have thought God would have used in his story. And the priests are just five, five miles away from where Jesus was proclaimed to be born. They had been waiting just as long as anybody else, studying the prophecies just as much as anybody else. They're five miles away, and they don't send a Christmas card. How is it that these Gentiles from over a thousand miles away end up coming to visit in person? Jesus, being born in Bethlehem, this little no-name town, as I said the other week, the uh, proverbial metropolis fruitcake that just got passed around among overthrowers. How is God going to use a psychopath to get him from Bethlehem to Egypt to fulfill the image of the new Israel? J.K. Rowling herself couldn't have come up with this stuff. And yet the Lord planned it for generations. So here, how the story continues that I started just a little bit ago in Matthew 13 through 15. It goes like this. Now after they, the, uh, the wise men, had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and there and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, there's this theme that I kept catching as um, I looked at all the times that Joseph comes up. And we don't know a whole lot about him, and, and I'm not going to dive into this too deep, but next time you read through the Christmas stories, pay attention to the fact the angel keeps coming to Joseph at night, in the darkest hour. And see what that does to your image of Joseph. That's for a whole other series. Maybe next year. Duly noted. My original theme for this passage, or for this uh, message, was Battle of the Kings. Because it's the mo probably the most universal theme of almost anything we have read so far in this season. It's one, uh, maybe going out on a limb, but where believers and unbelievers alike can be united in experiencing, in experiencing this idea. But how is it that warring kings can be a universal theme? Any more than the difficult themes to experience of, of virgin birth or birth um, as people are getting along in years phrase that has been catching on over this season, 
Well, hang on and find out. Know this. One of those characters out of today's story, Herod, is a paranoid leader. I'm talking foil cap on your hat on your head because the aliens are coming level paranoid leader. All right? Now, let me be clear. I hope that is not the part that resonates with you. Um, if so, I have no words because that is beyond my, beyond my pay grade. <laughs> but any threat to his power as king, it was like, just pack it in. You're done. You're finished. He would go through wives and sons like they were just rolling through on an assembly line just at the thought of insurrection against him. You know, they have those rhymes about what happened to all of, I think it's Henry VIII's wives that he just went through and killed them, divorced them, they died, killed them, they divorced them, won't happen to survive. I think that's how it goes. In fact, Caesar Augustus had said, it's better to be Herod's pig than his son. Probably got a better chance at leading a full life. But it's ironic, kind of along those lines of the Henry VIII thing, that one son happens to survive. And he happens to play a role later on in Jesus' human life. He is Herod Antipas, the one who, at Good Friday, was questioning Jesus. And he'll get his own power struggle at that time. So we have Herods on both ends of the spectrum. Paranoid kings make for bad news. And the wise men coming before Jesus from far away, they've traveled quite a bit, as, as we'll see, asking, where is the king of the Jews? It doesn't help the paranoia any, any at all. Again, this guy has killed flesh and blood, his own children over fears of insurrection. And now we have, here's this done deal threat. Hey, the king of the Jews is born. Where is he, Herod? How much worse is that going to make it? Now put yourself in Herod's sandals for a second. How would you react? As king, even if it's just king of a providence, he's not, you know, Caesar's out in Rome, and he's sort of Caesar's pawn, if you will, governing this little area. How would you react if your power were threatened? Here's a little hint. And guys, if you hear this downstairs, catch this. If you try and come up with a Sunday school answer to this question, your brain is going to hurt. Do you go after him? Do you take Jesus out to maintain power? As we saw on Christmas Eve, the solution of the Louisville slugger. Do you worship him? Basically, step him down off your throne to this baby. He's probably about two years old at this time. Well, they have a phrase for what that would be like. For a king to do that to a child, it's called political suicide. Do you throw your hands up and go, eh, what'll be, what'll be, or it'll be, what it'll be? Yeah, that phrase. What'll happen, will happen. Maybe that's considered the religious answer. But the Magi asked, where? Where has this king of the Jews been born? And it puts Herod and Jerusalem in an uproar. 
Herod, understandably, as I said, he's, his power is being threatened. Jerusalem, because now our leader is, our paranoid leader is scared. The uh, genocide might go beyond just his family to all of his town. Who knows? So when, as they're frightened, as they're maybe even in confusion, he calls the chief priests together. He calls the scribes together. The people who have been studying this stuff for generations. And he forwards on their question, where is this Messiah to be born? You guys, this is your domain, guys. Tell me what you know. And they know the answer, and they allude to the prophet, Micah 2. What we hear about the part where this little no-name town of Bethlehem comes into the picture. In 5.2, But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, you are one of the little clans of Judah. From you shall come forth for me, one who is to rule in Israel, as that king part, whose origin is from of old, from ancient days. So the priests know the where. And they hear the birth has taken place. How do they react? They hang out. They sit back. Now put the scale. Let's look at the Magi for a second. They're coming from Persia. If you, if you throw this up. Yeah, that does. There's Jerusalem. Bethlehem is about the top of that flag. Got them coming all the way from here. If you were to take our, our scale of our nativity scene here, and these guys are about 18 inches tall or so, probably send them out to Syracuse and have them traverse in to here, to our nativity scene. About 1,300 miles or so to worship Jesus. They get a long way, yet they do it. Even more head-scratching, these guys are astrologers. They're not Jews by any stretch of the imagination. They haven't heard of this guy. They haven't studied him. They haven't heard their prophets speaking about him for generations. They're Gentiles. And yet they travel from there, even just with a lot of us traveling from Syracuse to worship this Jesus. You'd never expect them to make this trip. Yet the chief priests, the ones who have been preparing for this Messiah for generations, they're basically right about where Jonathan is. Even if they're 18 inches tall, and you think they'd be there in a heartbeat. Yet they just stay in their pews. They never do. Again, they'll get their power struggle later on. All of a sudden, these collections of characters going on. The crazy dude with the foil hat seems like the straightest arrow of all. He's like, alright, I'm king, this kid's a threat, I'm putting him down for the dirt nap. It kind of makes sense. I don't know what it is about Herod that brings out the um, the Sopranosness in me or something like that, but I don't know. But it's the most ex- expected response coming from the genocidal maniac. Think these characters are mixed up? Maybe a little kooky? Here's the thing we can model all three of them and not even know it. So I say this is 
a passage, a, a section of an episode that unbelievers and believers can, can experience and relate to at the same time. Think about the Magi. I like to call them the no-way guys. Maybe you've seen them in church or in the parking lot. They come in, ripped jeans, boots, maybe a, well, one or two of them have a flannel shirt or two, maybe even a muscle shirt or two. Maybe they're a little bit stinky and rank because they just came off the third shift and they had to kind of decide, do I go to church or do I go take a shower? I guess church will win today. Maybe you see them coming up in a beat-up, rusted truck, and you see them coming into the parking lot, they're like, no way. They're just going to make the, you use the parking lot to turn around, and they're going to go on their way, or they're going to go out to the pavilion and have a smoke. No way are they coming in. Yet they do. And they worship. And if they don't already know life in Christ, pray they find it. Whether it's because they darken our doors or the doors of another church somewhere, and even more so, pray nobody gets in the way. Pray the chief priests of the 21st century don't become a stumbling block for them. I've had the honor of knowing a couple no-way guys in my life. One group, a couple of guys from back in Chicago, I swear, if you saw them walking down the street, you would think they were trench coat mafia. These were half a dozen guys, um, big guys. I mean, take half a dozen Daves. Uh, you know, they, they, they were bigger than me, and I don't exactly think I'm the smallest guy in the world. All black trench coats. You see them coming into church, and I bet the days they did, half the church start going, this is not the reason we wanted to end up in the newspaper. Um, where's the cover? And yet they were the nicest, most loyal friends I've known in my 40 plus years. And on the times they did come to church, Admittedly, it wasn't often, but they, when they came, they all came together and they certainly made their presence known. They were some of the most engaged guys in the whole congregation. And left the half of the church that was looking for cover when they walked in the sanctuary, price scratching their heads, going, how in the world did this work out? No way guys, the no way gals, yes, there's female versions of the same story, are God's ways of keeping us honest. Consider the priests, the ivory tower powers, if you will. To be sure, these guys were smart cookies. Walking encyclopedias of theology. Knew everything there was to know about God. Wrote a lot about God. And the traditions that, while well, it goes astray when they start making their traditions as, as high as, or on the same level as Scripture, but for all they knew about God, they knew so little of God. You catch the difference? You've heard me for a while. You've heard some of the best advice I ever received in seminary was day one, when my professor said, 
Don't spend so much time learning, studying about God that you forget to know God. More directly, don't confuse knowledge about God with a relationship with God. They can be two independent things. One does not necessarily infer the other. You've probably heard those who have a thousand Bible verses memorized and they're total jerks. A lot of knowledge about God doesn't necessarily mean a relationship with God. In his book, Didn't See It Coming, Carrie Newoff says, Jesus had a very different end in mind for the spiritually mature. The people you think chief priests would be. He didn't define maturity by how much you know. He defined it by how much you love. Also, all of a sudden, spiritual maturity can happen maybe without having a thousand Bible verses memorized. Here's the way to think about it. Because there is certainly value to the spiritual dis- disciplines. Bible study, um, worship, being in community, uh, prayer. When we stop at just knowledge, just the head stuff, like the chief priest did, it's like filling up your gas tank so you can sit in the car. That's not why we fill up. That's not why we go to burn and pay three thirty nine a gallon to just sit there in the car. Yeah, the heater going is great, and I get the idea of idling while you're waiting for the kids in the pickup line. I do it myself. But rather, we pay the inordinate prices for gas so we can go somewhere. So we can travel somewhere, even if it's to Wegmans or Walmart or wherever. We fill up on study, on knowledge, on the disciplines, so our relationship with God can go somewhere. Consider Herod. Yes, the foil hat fool. The there there ain't room for two kings guy. You ever hear the phrase, Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Maybe you have known this crowd, I'm guessing it's pretty common. Maybe you've even said it a few times. That's not I'm not knocking that. That's not that's a good thing. But there is a writing technique across scripture where you group a bunch of ideas together and you emphasize the last one. Almost like you ramp up to the climactic idea. Holy, just, and loving God. Emphasis mine. Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So you're building up to the thing you really want to emphasize. We like the idea, certainly, of Savior, Jesus Christ. That's not a bad thing. But do we cling to Savior and forget Lord? Do we hang on to loving and yet forget King? You know what it means to confess Jesus is Lord or Jesus is King? Here's the part Herod couldn't get. Or maybe maybe Herod did get it, and this is what freaked him out. It means we're not. If Jesus is Lord, if Jesus is King, it means I'm not. It means you're not. It means we're not. For many, that scares the Dickens out of them. Probably why Herod's response made sense in my head. 
It means if Jesus says something, we probably ought to listen. Because he says how things go. He sets the rules for how things work. We don't. Herod didn't need a crown, the risk of losing a crown to be motivated to take Jesus out. Because the idea, the concept of Jesus' birth, of God's incarnation, God becoming one, God with us, meant things in his life. Even though he sat on a throne, things in his life were going to have to change. But if you let him be king, going beyond just the, the picture of a birth announcement that goes out to everybody, hey, here's this seven pound, five ounce baby. Or the, the good news post on Facebook about you know, a birth announcement, a child being born. If you worship him and let your life develop in relationship to him, you start to get what God has done for you in the Christmas story. There's only one response to that. One real response. God is good. Let's pray together. Lord, you amaze us so many times, especially in this story, the way you choose characters, the way you write this story across generations. Thank you for allowing us to be a part of it. Help us to hang on to the parts you have given us, the hope, the joy, the peace, the love that comes in the first advent while we await your coming in the second. And help us Help us to be your hands and feet. To welcome the no way guys and gals. To not be one of the ivory tower powers. To say maybe there isn't room for two kings. You are the one king. And all of this, may you receive the glory you deserve. All this we pray in your name. Amen.